0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Joshua Teidelbaum. Joshua is a professor of Middle East Studies in the Department of Middle East Studies at Bar-Ilan University. He's someone who's written extensively on the Gulf, with a focus on Saudi Arabia in particular. He's written a great deal on a number of, of issues that have had a, a really big impact and influence on my my own work with regard to Saudi, and I'm delighted that he's able to join us today. Josh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Great, thank you. Thank you for having me on, Simon.
0: Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, as I say, a really, really... Pleased that we can make this happen. Um, I've really enjoyed reading your work over the years um, on, on various aspects of Saudi and, and Gulf politics. But I must ask, as I normally do at the start, what what got you into um, into working on the Gulf and, and Saudi Arabia in the first first place?
1: Well, I think we got to start uh, when we got f- first. Uh, what got me into studying uh, the Middle East and. Um that's, you know, just uh, maybe for a lot of us, uh, uh, sometimes a uh, personal background. I'm, I'm a Jewish, I'm from the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. Uh, my father's a rabbi. Um, I grew up with a very strong uh, uh, Jewish identity, combined with a, maybe a typical, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, so a typical uh, Jewish liberal uh, civil rights. My father was active in the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, so this this got me interested of course in in israel and uh, our family lived here in uh, just after the war in 1967 october 1967 which was a very uh, important uh, period uh, for for israel Um, and um, that got me interested in israel and uh, by the time I got to, uh, I spent even after that I spent a lot of time in Israel. And uh, after that, I got to a, a university, a UCLA. And when I got to university, I became interested in the countries that surrounded Israel. And it seemed that there wasn't uh, that much known, really, at least in my uh, arena of of the of the Middle East. So that brought me to to uh, want to study the Middle East and uh, and Islam and uh, as, you know, a young student discovering, at least in my perception at the time, that that Islam was actually much closer to Judaism than the, than the Christianity that I knew uh, growing up, um, and that uh, Islam was a Middle Eastern religion, Judaism was a Middle Eastern religion, uh, and uh, so that brought me to, to interest in studying the area. And um, I got interested in studying the Gulf, and Saudi Arabia, through uh, my interest in the pilgrimage, the Hajj, which was my MA thesis. I mean, I could go on, but maybe that's an initial entree into that.
0: that it's really interesting, Josh, hearing you um, hearing you position your your intellectual interests, which which clearly intersect with with the personal. But can I ask? When you went to university, when you went to UCLA, what was it that you were, what were you studying? Were you a historian, political science?
1: I I was um, the first major, uh, the first one in the uh, near, what was called Near Eastern Studies major at UCLA. Uh, This was around 1977 or so, uh, which was an interdisciplinary major. So you could take classes from history, from political science. Uh, from sociology, from anthropology all and, and I did some of that, but a, I really became attracted to 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 history and um, and then that that made me a really a historian
0: amazing and so after you well I should ask actually the of all the things that are a master 's dissertation on or a master 's thesis on you picked the pilgrimage, why was that
1: um I just saw. You know, it was a while ago. That was already at Tel Aviv University. Um, it's around the, the early '80s or so. Um, I just, I, had, I, thought, I think I had seen some films on it. I just thought this was a really amazing event. Uh, you know, now I think more than two million people uh, come every year in this religious. Ceremony, this ancient religious ceremony. I became interested in in other pilgrimages, uh, uh, pilgrimages as well. But the the Hajj uh, really uh, sparked my interest. And then I, I had started to take classes on Saudi Arabia from my my mentor, the the um, late uh, Professor Yossi Joseph Kostiner. And then I connected so pilgrimage with. With the Gulf, and this led to an interest in, in the Hejaz, and so I wrote on the wrote on the uh, the Hajj. My M.A. Uh, thesis was on the Hajj uh, in the uh, political uh, competition and, and eventually war between the Saudis and 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 the Hashemites, and that's brought me there. And then that brought me to Saudi Arabia in general.
0: Amazing, I, I love this part of joining all the dots and seeing the the sort of the, the seeds and roots of ideas and, and figuring out where they they began. So so you, you have all of these things that are moving around these different interests for different reasons that, that start to converge on on Saudi Arabia. So was that then something that you explored for your for your PhD work? Did you um, did you then pick it up afterwards?
1: Where, well so being a, being a historian, you know I always tend to go back. Sure. To try to understand, and, and I, I do current events as well, as, as as you know. But I feel most comfortable and enjoy most really dealing with with history. And so I, uh, from my dissertation, my uh, my uh, M.A. We call it here my M.A. thesis. Uh, I became interested in in the Hijaz, and so I, my my Ph.D. dissertation was on the Hashemite Kingdom of the Hijaz. And of course, you can't. Uh, once you get past a certain year, you know you're dealing with with Saudi Arabia after the uh, the uh, as the Saudis would say the unification of the Arabian Peninsula yeah. um, uh, in 1925. So that brought me to uh, to, to Saudi uh, to, to study uh, Saudi Arabia, and then it's the politics of the country, the the, the religion, uh, how. Uh, you know, integration of the hijaz. How different the Najd was from the hijaz. Uh, how how history is written to try to to downplay those differences. How hijazis um, resisted that. Um, and uh, if I could just add here, like one one thing that uh, my my latest article that I uh, that dealt with with the following that that. Until the Saudis captured the Hejaz for the, the last time in 1925, uh, the Hejaz was in a, uh, a political economic orbit of the Red Sea. It was much more connected to Egypt than it was to uh, to Najd. And, uh, and the Arabian Peninsula, which we refer to now as this kind of natural geographical or geopolitical entity doesn't really exist until the Saudis integrate the Hejaz. So until that happens, the the Hejaz is the focus of a lot of Attempts to control it mostly from you know Egypt from from the Fatimids uh, because of the pilgrimage, of course. And uh, yeah. so this this article I wrote uh, deals with this uh, with this issue and really the red the Red Sea as a as a as a unit that until the Saudis captured the Hijaz and then the Saudis tried to kind of erase that connection to the Red Sea.
0: So there's a there's a, a number of really interesting things at play here, Josh. I mean, obviously, there's the the rise and fall of the the Hejazi Kingdom, if you will. Then there's the, the the broader competing struggle that you talk about in the article, and then there's a, a I guess a competing historiographies. So there's a number of things to, to maybe tease out, but perhaps for those that that haven't read your work on the uh, on the Hijaz, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the Hijaz Kingdom. The um, if I get this right, the rise and fall of the Hashemite Kingdom of Arabia as your uh, mm-hmm. one of your books is is appropriately called.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Perhaps you could yeah. just articulate a little bit about that, please.
1: Sure. So. Um, uh, Since the founding of Saudi Arabia, we tend to forget that the Hejaz was a a more or less uh, independent kingdom, before it was part of the Ottoman Empire and then even after it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Because it contained the the Haramein and Mecca and Medina, it had a very special place. Um, It it was not uh, taxed by the Ottomans. In fact. the Ottomans poured money into the Hijaz. It gave money to the to the residents of the Hijaz who who uh, collected it by virtue of living in 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 the holy places. And this allowed a a, a great degree of independence uh, by the Ashraf, the uh, descendants of the Prophet, uh, in the Hijaz, and allowed them to maneuver between these uh, these greater kingdoms because. Um, the Hajjaj uh, wasn't entirely independent, it was part of various empires, but the whether it be the Khalifa or the Ottoman Sultan or whatever, they needed to have a good Hajj for their sure, own legitimacy. Yeah. And so therefore they needed the cooperation of the locals to to bribe the Bedouin, to allow uh, uh, traffic, and they could say that they were facil- facilitating a, a, a good Hajj. Um, it was also uh, the 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 the, um, the, the pilgrimage um, and uh, being in control of the holy places for the 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 we'll call them for now the emperor because it went on different depending on what uh, what empire we're talking about. Um, but uh, they they projected their legitimacy through this um, palanquin, this camel litter called the mahmal. Which, uh, which, through which uh, they would send through Egypt, the, uh, they would accompany, uh, uh, the, the sending A uh, camel caravan would send the kiswa, the cover for the Kaaba. And this was their way of uh, kind of projecting uh, their uh, religious temporal authority uh, in this area. So to just kind of fast forward. Uh, uh, to the to the 20th century, which you know, uh, you, there's a lot you can do until you get to the 20th <laughs> century. But um, but uh, when in in in, uh, in 1908 we have a new ruler, the Sharif Hussein bin Ali, who uh, for various reasons um, a, early on starts to assert his independence uh, from the Ottomans, and this um, uh, brings him into into certain contacts eventually leading to contacts with Arab nationalists and the very famous Hussein McMahon correspondence, and uh, the alliance with the British and start, starting the Arab Revolt, the uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, this, this whole thing, eventually establishing from 1916 to 1925, if you don't count Yemen, the first independent Arab state. Okay, and uh, and in, in, until they are they are captured by the uh, by the, the Saudis, and so uh, in that in that book that you mentioned, I, I explore uh, uh, Hussein's uh, attempts at state building vis a vis the tribes, the uh, the the Hijazi elites, his uh, competition with the Saudis, uh, the role of various sons, Faisal and Abdallah. and. Um, uh, until, you know, that fateful time in, in, in 1925, when he eventually has to flee, uh, Sharif Hussein bin Ali has to flee. Uh, he ends up uh, uh, into going to Aqaba, where Ibn Saud says to the British, you know, I'm going to capture Aqaba if you guys are going to keep Sharif Hussein bin Ali there. So the British basically force him at gunpoint to go to Cyprus, which is another British colony. Yeah, and uh, he he hangs out in Cyprus till 1931 when he gets sick, and they allow him uh, to come to uh, Amman, and he dies. Uh, he dies in Amman, uh, in you know, the, in in the Hashemite territory of Jordan, and uh, not too many people know this, but. Uh, Sharif Hussein bin Ali is uh, buried on uh, the Temple Mount on the Haram al Sharif.
0: Oh wow! Okay. Uh,
1: yes, and he he's he's buried there, um, as uh, there there was a time when um, uh, 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 the Mufti uh, Haj Amin al Husseini, who was obviously mm-hmm. not related to Sharif Hussein, but when he had this idea of turning. The uh, the the uh, haram into kind of a uh, I don't know what is it Westminster a place where the the uh, greats of the nation are buried.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. Uh,
1: um, So uh, he uh, it it was started with Sharif uh, Hussein bin Ali and and uh, he's uh, buried on the Temple Mount.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. I, this this whole set of stories around the hijaz, um, dating back centuries, but also the the period that you focus on in the book is is fascinating. I'm I'm curious, Josh, if you could just elaborate a little bit on on the the hijaz's role and ability to navigate these competing um, those competing powers, the Ottoman, the Khalifa, um, the 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 competing powers and the attempts and the efforts, the processes through which um, the people of the Hejaz were able to exert some degree of autonomy or independence as a consequence of of the holy places. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that, please? I find it fascinating.
1: So, because they have the holy places and, you know, you have this yearly pilgrimage, which is so central, as everyone knows, uh, to Islam, uh, they had a huge degree of leverage. I mean, no, no one from no no Ottomans or no no Fatimids or Mamluks could have that kind of the local connections that uh, with the the Hijazi elites and with the tribes that, that that people who and families had had built up over over centuries there. So they, they really relied on them, and uh, he the, the 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 Ashraf could could maneuver this because they knew that there would come become a time where every year where they would have to make a make this pilgrimage and and caravans would come from from uh, you know from Iraq and from Syria and and and, and from e- North Africa and through Egypt and and the 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 khalifa or the sultan whoever it was had to make this work, and he couldn't do it without them. So, without the, the locals. So the locals maneuvered, and they bribed, and they threatened. And there were times when the Hajj didn't even happen, or barely happened, or only local people came because this thing uh, didn't work out, and uh, not enough money came, or or the uh, the the, uh, the Sharif raised the amount of money he wanted. Uh, so, uh, and this, you know, with with the political skill of of, of the Sharif, he could sometimes do better and sometimes not, uh, sometimes not do so well. The Ottomans themselves uh, were able to um, put different uh, pit, different Sharif uh, fam- families of Ashraf, different branches, against each other in order to further the Ottomans' own goals. And sometimes they would take one and uh, bring him to Istanbul and put him in a golden cage. Uh, Sharif Hussein bin Ali himself spent time in Istanbul. Uh, because you know his family, his branch of the family was on the outs, so they were they were kept uh, right. under watch. So, so that's kind of the tool, of this hajj, this, this something that has to happen every year that that gave them just uh, a lot of uh, of leverage. Now, e- internally, though, the, the the ashraf themselves were not always successful. They had to, they wanted to enrich themselves. They had to give money to the badu. The badu sometimes they didn't think it was enough money. Um, later on, the Badu don't know should we go with the should we go with the Saudis? The Saudis are rising, but you know we don't know where they're going to go, whereas or how how well they'll do. Whereas the Hashemites are are you know might be better, and so there were these these issues uh, also, and and they they also the Hashemites also had to had to deal with th- this kind of looming Saudi threat that was that was always there until it it became too much, and they had to. Protect the tribes, uh, you know, to keep the tribes on their side versus Saudi attempts, both through money and and proselytizing, to get the tribes to go over over to their side.
0: Fascinating. Thank you so much. I should just say for for people listening that that this isn't so much just limited to, or this discussion isn't just limited to one piece of work, but rather spans a number of different um, books and articles that that you've, um, I guess, punctured your career with Josh. Which is absolutely fascinating, but I must ask you about the uh, the article that you alluded to earlier on the the one um, that I believe um, I will get the hopefully get the title of the journal right, Cambridge's Historical Journal, um, where you talk about the long durée of competition here. Um, right. You talked about the Hejaz being in the sort of in the sphere of the Red Sea, right. so. What what role did uh, and you talk about this this sort of long durée struggle, which is fascinating. We've been talking a little bit about it, but what role does Egypt play then in all of this?
1: Okay, so um, if you kind of look at the the Saudi, even the the, the, the Saudi influenced Western narrative of the of the history. Um, of, of the relation between Najd and the Hijaz. You, you might think that, uh, you know, this, this was always under, off and on, under Saudi influence and they were, it's kind of this natural part of the Arabian Peninsula, when, um, and, and, and that, that is kind of the sh- short durée, okay? If you just look at the, the relations of, between Hijaz and Najd from, you know, the end of the, the 19th century to the beginning of the, the 20th century. You miss how, how deep the connection uh, uh, is for, between the Hejaz and the Red Sea and the Egyptian orbit. And uh, then you you misunderstanding, you misunderstanding what the rupture was by the, the, when the Saudis finally, for the last time captured the Hejaz and integrated it. You integrated it into the, the Saudi uh, Arabian kingdom. And uh, the, the the there's a book uh, I forget the woman's name I think her name is Alexis Wick who has a book on the Red Sea and I, and, and I think this uh, in the past couple of years there's been a more focus on the Red Sea as even from ancient times as a um, a, a political and economic system trading and, and so forth I mean I mean Jeddah traded, more with uh, with uh, East Africa and with Egypt than it traded with Najd or the Persian Gulf. Yeah. Okay. And and so this was a really important going back to to even Roman times. It was a really important um, economic uh, e- economic system. And e- Egypt itself, uh, going back to the uh, to the Fatimids, um, sometimes controlled. The, the Hijaz outright under under Muhammad Ali and other times uh, tried to assert a kind of um, religious protectorate over the Hijaz. I mean the, the, the until the 19 uh, uh, 1920s the the Kiswa, the cover of the Kaaba was made in Egypt, in Cairo right. and this they covered they you know covered literally the, the Kaaba itself. So, so th- this was a, a symbol of of um, of Egyptian, let's call it the primacy in in uh, in in the Hejaz. and this was this was very jealously guarded by uh, by the, all the Egyptian uh, rulers, uh, and it, it, it came into into modern times uh, through a very uh, important incident that uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with, maybe not, that um, in 1926, the Saudis had just captured the Hejaz, and their fanatic Wahhabi uh, um, troops, let's call them the Ikhwan, attacked the Mahma, attacked this Egyptian caravan, and killed some Egyptian uh, guards. And this led to a rupture in Egyptian... Um, Saudi relations and the, these relations were not established, in, reestablished until 1936. Okay, so you had 10 mm-hmm. years yeah. uh, of of, uh, of a lack of of uh, diplomatic relations, and the way they they opened up these diplomatic relations opened up was the Egyptians had to acknowledge the, the Saudi control of the Hejaz. They had previously they would not do that, and uh, they, they had to acknowledge it, and then the Egyptians started helping out uh, economically and helping out with the hajj. The first, um, the first uh, hotels, like kind of major hotels, were done by Egyptians. Uh, Talat Harb, a famous Egyptian um, uh, uh, financier, later a uh, a, um, a minister, uh, helped uh, invest in Egypt. The the first a. Uh, Hodge, uh air flights were were done by egyptian uh, aircraft wow uh, josh so i should that's, yeah
0: i should ask and this is this is me perhaps demonstrating my my ignorance but in the in the decades that followed there were increasing tensions between the saudis and the egyptians to what extent did um did this period shape those those tensions and differences do you think so
1: it's it's a great question cuz uh, as you know from from Yemen and the Yemen and later there 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 were th- th- these tensions i think by by the when we get into the 40s and so forth i think those tensions you know kind of these historical tensions have really faded in, into the background and there are there are other challenges there like like Arab nationalism and and Nasserism and I really mm-hmm. don't think they're kind of they, they, they so much rely on those those other uh, those other tensions um, I don't really think that the, the Saudis are fearful that they're going to recapture the Hejaz but but they are very fear, fearful in, in the 60s of uh, establishing in Yemen kind of an, an Egyptian uh, a satellite that that would uh, would undermine uh, the Saudi regime. As, as some of your listeners might know, there were several uh, Egyptian-inspired uh, attempted coups in in the sixties uh, in in Saudi Arabia. They were all nipped in the bud. Uh, um, some of you, 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 some of your listeners may know that uh, in the nineteen sixties, there were uh, Saudi pilots who defected with their American planes to. To Egypt yeah. in the middle of the Yemen crisis, so so they they were they, they, Faisal in particular was very concerned about uh, Egyptian uh, attempts to to undermine uh, undermine the the Saudi royal family.
0: Sure. Josh over the years then since this this work you've positioned yourself as as a real expert on on the kingdom of saudi arabia and you've written extensively on a whole host of things that that we don't necessarily have time to go into now including some fascinating work on on the sheer of the kingdom but as we're we're rapidly running out of time, I'd, I'd like to ask you, if I may, about your current project, which, um, having heard a little bit about, is absolutely fascinating, and I'm I'm really keen to to see it in its in its physical form. But perhaps you can just tell uh, tell people a little bit about about what it is, and and if you have a title, perhaps you could even reveal the title.
1: Um. So uh, this is a book that I've been working on for many years, and it comes out of my uh, interest in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, in tribes, in the royal family, um, and uh, the, the influence of tribes in, in the military in particular. Uh, and uh, the working title is Saudi, The Saudi Arabian National Guard, Tribes, Family, and the Military in Modern Saudi Arabia. And uh, what what I what I deal with the book again as a as a historian um, is that I I discuss the uh, the Ikhwan this strike this tribal strike force coming out of Najd the fanatical Wahhabi uh, strike force. Um, and uh, something that's been fairly well co- covered, at how it was established and, and so forth, and, and then their, their their rebellion in 2930. But what isn't really uh, so well understood is is uh, its transformation into the Saudi Arabian National Guard, becoming the body that actually is protecting the royal family. One time rebelled against the royal family, and then kind of morphed into this body of protecting the royal family. and. Um, through the years, I'm really skipping through through a lot here, but uh, when we get to the uh, to the competition between Saud and Faisal and the Saudi Arabian National Guard is this, this kind of this old, a bunch of old guys with uh, you know single bolt action rifles. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, they they uh, they uh, Faisal decides to build them up. Uh, against Saud and points Abdallah, King Abdallah, uh, eventually, to run the Saudi Arabian National Guard and becomes very uh, important in balancing the, the various factions in, uh, in the Saudi royal family, something that me and uh, Yossi Kostner that we called Faisal's order, his, his balance of uh, the different factions uh, in the royal family. Uh, a, by the way, the British were the ones. Who established uh, the modern Saudi Arabian National Guard, uh, and uh, and uh, through all kinds of machinations, don't have time to get into. But at the time, the British had broken off relations. I mean, the, the Saudis had broken off relations uh, with the British because first because of the Buraimi crisis, and then Suez. And this was a way for the British and the Saudis to get back together again and reestablish diplomatic relations. And um, eventually. To make a long story short, because I know we don't, don't have time, um, what happens after Abdallah dies and, uh, and Muhammad bin Salman and Muhammad bin Salman, they basically purge the whole uh, Abdallah network, including the Saudi Arabian National Guard, and put it all under Muhammad bin Salman. and. Um, end Faisal's order. In other words, there's no balance anymore between the different branches of the royal family. And that's how I'll end my book when I when I finish it.
0: Fascinating. I, I have so many questions, but I think what we'll have to do, Josh, is get you back on the podcast when the book is out and we'll go through it in, in some more detail. When when can we expect to to be able to read this?
1: Oh, it's a sensitive question. Yeah, I'm <laughs> you know, sorry. All of us, we always, I, I think, probably, probably within the year, it's nearly all written. I'm, i you know, in the process of, uh, as you know, sending out book proposals and, and, uh, and so forth, and trying to, uh, trying to find a, a publisher, and uh, hopefully that'll, uh, that'll go well. I think anything on Saudi Arabia is usually fairly. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of interest in it, and there's a lot of, lot of uh, new things that I. Uh, that I show in there about British involvement, about uh, involvement of uh, of the United States, uh, the competition between Britain and the United States around the Saudi Arabia National Guard, um, a lot of corruption uh, issues of corruption. Um, you may know that the uh, the um, Serious Fraud Office uh, has in in, uh, in Britain has recently indicted uh, British officials in a corruption scandal involving. The Saudi Arabian National Guard uh, yeah. sales to this to the Saudi Arabian National Guard. So uh, that's something that I, I have a lot of documentation on. Uh, when after Abdallah died, the uh, the Foreign Office allowed a lot of stuff to be uh, released that previously it would not release on this issue.
0: Amazing. Well, my uh, my interest is even more peaked if that were possible already. Um, Josh. We're, we're dramatically out of time, but I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, um, really stimulating talking with you. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't at all surprised that this would be the case, given how much I've enjoyed uh, reading your work over the years. But thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you, Simon. It was a really great, uh, great conversation, and I really enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Josh. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.